0: 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. I'm entitling this message, Preach the Word. 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom. Preach the Word be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth, and be it turned aside to fables. Those of you who have been studying along with us, you understand the letter contains urgent charges that Paul gives to his young protege, Timothy. One leader is passing the torch. One leader is passing vital instructions to a brand new leader. Paul has urged Timothy to endure abuse for the sake of the gospel in chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Hold fast to Jesus in chapter 1, verse 13 through 18. Be strong in the Lord Jesus in chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Remember, remember that Jesus is risen, resurrected from the dead in chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Remind the church about the dangers of false teachers, false doctrines, departing from the foundations that have been given in chapter 2, verses 14 through 21. Flee youthful lust. Follow after the Lord in chapter 2, verses 22 through 26. As we fast forward through chapters 3, in this chapter, in chapter 4, it contains final charges— Preach the word in verses 1 through 4. Reach the world in verse 5. We might think about this chapter as farewell instructions. Farewell warnings to Timothy and to the church. Paul's ministry to the churches has been fruitful. But it hasn't been without difficulty Paul is going to give a final testimony in verses 6 through 8. He's going to make a final request in verses 9 and 11 and 13. He's going to communicate a final sorrow in verses 10 and 16. Demas has forsaken him. Many of Paul's Roman friends have forsaken him in verse 16. And then Paul is going to sing a final song of praise that is going to echo through the centuries. A song of deliverance in verses 17 through 22. Paul has been called by God to preach the word. Timothy has been called by God to preach the word. Some of you have been called by God to preach the word, and all of you have been called by God to fulfill the ministry that God has entrusted to you. And so the it's I have to state the obvious. I believe that God has called me to preach the word, for Jonathan to preach the word, and the word of God is not the opinion of men. The word of God is not the philosophies of, of human beings. It's not the desires of men. The word of the Lord is the divine revelation of God given in Christ and in the word of God, the word made flesh and the word that has been written down and transmitted. In an earlier letter Paul told Timothy quote this is a faithful saying Christ came into the world to save sinners in 1st Timothy chapter 1 verse 15 so the gospel of Jesus is the power of God unto salvation it says in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 we live in a world of messages the world is going to inundate you with signs and messages invitations on any given day you're going to be asked to believe something, to buy something to maybe be something different it makes perfect sense that we want to hear and sing songs of salvation and hope Paul knows that there's only one message that provides a permanent hope There's only one message that provides a lasting hope, an eternal hope. In the last section, Paul reminded Timothy just earlier in chapter three, Paul said, for all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In chapter three, verses sixteen through seventeen, I want to just backtrack just for a moment. This is what Timothy has been called to preach. Doctrine, that which is right. Reproof, that which is wrong. Correction, how to get right. Instruction in righteousness, how to stay right. If what you're preaching isn't right, if it doesn't make you right, if it doesn't help you stay right, then you're not doing it right. And so Paul launches... And says, preach the word. Preach the word. Preach the word because Jesus is watching. Look at verse 1. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead. It is appearing and in his kingdom." For those of you who are familiar with the Bible, the New Testament, or you were with us when we were teaching through First Timothy, these words sound very familiar. It's almost as you've heard them before, and it's because it's in 1 Timothy 5, verse 21. Paul uses almost the exact same language, quote, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe These things without prejudice and do nothing from partiality. So Paul is calling on the Lord himself to be a judge concerning what he's about to say. In this verse, he is adding references to judgment and to Jesus' return. And I'm going to suggest something to you could it be because what we learn later on in the chapter could it be that Paul's own nearing death is it could it be that Paul's understanding and awareness of where he's at and what he's doing his own circumstances in ministry his own death is causing his thoughts to now like a laser focus on the coming of Christ Focus on the fact that the, the sense of urgency, that Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And because Jesus is coming back, there's this sense of urgency. And that, by the way, is one of the words that we would use to describe preaching. Preaching requires urgency. And so urgency requires focus. And so Paul says, number one, the Lord Jesus who will one day judge the living and the dead. That is, think for a moment, Jesus is going to return. Jesus is going to return. And let's make this personal just for a moment. We're going to put ourselves in Paul's place. We're putting ourselves in the writer's place. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. And will he find me preaching the gospel? He's coming back. And I will either be doing what God's called me to do or I'm not going to be doing what God's called me to do. If I die, Jesus will judge me in part on whether or not I preached or failed to preach the gospel. If Jesus has called me to preach and I failed to preach, he's going to demand an explanation. And if God has called you to preach and you're not preaching, he's going to demand an explanation. And some of you have been called to a unique position. God has called you to a unique and specific ministry. Ministry, And because he's called you to that unique and specific ministry, he is going to find you either faithfully or unfaithfully fulfilling the ministry that he's entrusted to you. Jesus is going to return in glory. The preacher is called not only to preach, but to be prepared for his coming in glory. The implication, again, being the preacher is either prepared or unprepared, embarrassed and ashamed or ready to be held accountable for what he has done or for what he has failed to do. To be held accountable for the opportunities entrusted, the privileges provided, And number two, Jesus is going to return in glory. And number three, he's going to set up that kingdom. And because the preacher, the minister, is going to be a citizen in that future kingdom, his place in the kingdom is in part going to be determined by his faithfulness in this kingdom. And guess what? That also applies to you. You're prepared or you're unprepared. But God hasn't called you to stay here forever. Your citizenship isn't simply here. It's somewhere else. And because God has called you. There's a sense of reminder. And so Paul says, preach the word in verse two. Why? God is watching. Why? Jesus is coming. Why? Because Jesus is the judge. Why? Because your service isn't going to go unnoticed. Every preacher, can I be bold? Every preacher hopes that dozens or scores of people might hear him, hundreds, maybe even thousands. Some preachers are even bold enough to think that millions of people might hear what they have to say. Can you imagine Paul In this prison, writing these words to Timothy, did he have any idea that not just Timothy and not just the people in Ephesus, but first hundreds and then thousands and then hundreds of thousands and then millions of people over centuries of time would open up this scroll and be reminded of what Paul has to say? Paul wants every preacher to know that God is watching and Jesus is paying close attention. Paul wants every saint to know that God is watching. Jesus, Jesus is paying close attention. And so we preach the word for good reason. Look what it says in verse 2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and patience and teaching with all long-suffering and teaching. Preach the word in light of eternity. Preach the word. And this is perhaps the best reason to make sure that you're preaching the word. It's because it is an eternal message. And this is the revelation of God concerning Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the gospel message. This is the salvation message. All preaching includes teaching and sometimes teaching includes elements of preaching. Let me help you. What is the difference between preaching and teaching? Teaching is imparting information Preaching is, in part, urging you to believe that information. John Calvin wrote, and I think that this is important, and I also think it's true. Quote, Preaching is the public exposition of Scripture by the man sent from God, in which God himself is present in judgment and in grace I think all of those elements are important. It's the public expression or exposition of scripture by the man sent from God, in which God is present in judgment and in grace. And guess what? Probably, if all of those elements aren't present, it's probably not really preaching. Preaching isn't really preaching unless it's public and unless it's powerful if the speaker hasn't been sent by God, if God isn't present in the service in judgment and grace, then the most gracious thing that we can call it is a speech. If I look disappointed when you come up to me and say, hey, thanks for the talk. Hey, that was a great speech. Wow. Wow then it's just a TED talk. It's just a podcast. It's something else. It can't be called preaching. The verb Paul uses translated be ready, preach the word be ready, is a word in the original language which means be instant. At hand. It's the same word that's that's translated at hand in verse 6. If you just skip ahead. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. Very same word. It means it's what's next. It means be ready. If you're a kid and if you've ever played baseball, there's the batter and the batter is up, but there's also another batter. The batter's called the on-deck batter. This is the batter who's about to go to the plate. This is the idea. Be on hand. Literally, it could be translated, be on hand. It's the word that you would use to describe I need you to be ready. I need you to be up. I need you to be on hand. In the popular world of drama, when you get picked to play in a starring role or a major role or a significant role, they usually have an understudy. The understudy has to know all of the lines. The understudy has to be prepared to say every single thing that 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 person says at a moment's notice. And that's in part what Paul is saying. You have to be ready. You have to be ready right now. And what does the expression translated in season or out of season mean? In our culture and society, we think it means winter, spring, summer, or fall. That's what we think about. Four seasons. But that's actually... Probably not the meaning. Here, there are two distinct Greek words: eukairos and kairos In one sense, both of those words, kairos, is is has something to do with time, time and space. So, in one sense, it's a reference to time, but in another sense, it's beyond a reference of time to whether or not it's a good time or a bad time. Many times you've come up to me and you said, is this a good time? Is this a good time? Or is this a bad time? Typically, when I'm getting ready to preach, I need to stay focused, but still. I I need to be able to respond to you. Imagine we're at a funeral and I'm getting ready to talk at this funeral and someone says, hey, could I make an appointment to counsel with you right at this very moment? And I go, you know what? There's a good time for things and there's a bad time for things. Here, what Paul means is whether it's a good time, whether it's a bad time, whether it's an appropriate moment or an inappropriate moment. In other words, part of what Paul is saying is... Whether it's convenient or not, whether it's welcome or unwelcome, whether it's you're on duty or off duty, whether you're on duty or off duty, you have to seize the opportunity. And if the opportunity doesn't present itself, you have to make the opportunity. And I think that this is something really important because this seems to be what Paul practiced himself and what he preached himself so when he's saying this you got to be ready you got to be in in season and out of season if you're arrested you got to be prepared to share the gospel with the king with the emperor you've got to be prepared at that moment to do what God has called you to do and so in a very real sense he's saying you need to be able to take advantage of every situation make advantages where none exists no one knew better better than Paul that there was a time for bold passionate public ministry and guess what and then it passes the opportunity is gone the sun has gone up the sun is set and so what elements include the urgent proclamation of the gospel Urgency, boldness, patience, persistence. Timothy's instructed to patiently correct those who are in error. Explaining the truth. Helping the hearer to understand the truth. And accept the truth. So it's not good enough. It's not good enough for the preacher to simply say, Jesus is God. You need to be able to explain How he's God and why he's God. He's God because he has all the attributes of God. Jesus is able to do everything that God can do. Why is he God? Well, guess what? Your sin is such that it's going to require God himself to permanently finish The work of cleansing your heart forever and ever. Your punishment is eternal. And so guess what? It's going to require an eternal being in order to take on the consequences of rebellion and disobedience. This is the meaning of the word convince. It means persuade. And so preaching should be persuasive. It calls for the hearer to make a decision about something. I need to turn from my sin. I need to receive Christ. I'm going down the wrong road. I need to get on a different road. I need to abandon the unhealthy lifestyle that I've embraced and embrace a brand new lifestyle. Not just simply because it's a healthy thing to do. Not just simply because it's a right thing to do. But because there's a real God in heaven and eternity matters. Preaching should be persuasive. It should call each and every person to make a decision about what they're going to do with their life and the direction that they're going to take. The servant of Jesus can be called upon at a moment's notice to prove or convince, to confront false claims and then provide the truth. Preaching can also include rebuke. That means confront what is false confront what is false and replace it by that which is true, in what sense? For those who are sinning to cease sinning and explain the need for repentance of sin. Why should I give up this unhealthy relationship? Why shouldn't I keep drinking and drugging? Why shouldn't I be unfaithful to my husband or wife? It isn't simply because your family is important and your marriage is important and your life is important. It's because there are eternal consequences for every single choice that you make. That's why. If a preacher neglects or ignores the topic of sin and the need for repentance, it's not really biblical preaching. It might be a great story. It might even be a great so-called sermon But it isn't what the Bible is asking the preacher to do, because the preacher is supposed to have God's heart on this subject and why it's so important. Preaching includes exhortation. That's why he says exhort. This is a word that's ripe with encouragement. We're to encourage those who have come to faith. We're to encourage those who are growing in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We encourage sinners to believe. And we, we encourage saints to keep on keeping on with Jesus. The preacher's job is to say, Yes, yes, you're doing good. Yes, thank you, thank you that you've shown up for church. Thank you, thank you that you've opened up your Bible. Thank you, thank you that you're in women's Bible study and men's Bible study. Thank you that you're praying for one another and you're encouraging one another and you're exhorting one another. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, said, quote, my grand point in preaching is to break the hard heart and to heal the broken heart, unquote. You might think, is that even possible? Could you possibly do that in a, in a single sermon? Yeah, if it's a gospel sermon. Someone said, Preach not because you have to say something, but because you have something to say. The gospel sermon should break the heart that's been hardened by sin and rebellion and disobedience. It should break the heart of the person who's giving himself or herself permission to go one more moment, one more day in rebellion. But it should also give the person who said, I'm giving up. I'm giving in. I want to be whole and I want to be well. I want my life to be different. Martin Luther put it this way, quote, I preach as though Christ was crucified yesterday, rose from the dead today, coming back tomorrow. If you really had that sense of urgency, would it change the way you live and the conversations that you have? My wife had an episode on Friday afternoon, she was preparing for this great big event on Saturday. Her life, her life, her life has been devoted to this ministry and to this church. I can't even begin to tell you the sacrifices that she's made and the service that she's provided. And guess what? In a single moment, Your heart can stop beating. It can stop sending blood to your brain. There is going to come a moment in each and every life, barring the return of Jesus in glory, that it's going to be your final breakfast. It's going to be your final lunch. It's going to be your final dinner. The Puritan preacher Richard Baxter said, quote, I preached as never to preach again, and as a dying man to dying men. He preached as if every single message might be his last message. As it might be the last and final thing that he is given the privilege to be able to share. In this passage, Paul is a dying man. That's not hyperbole or exaggeration. When he says in verse 6, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. He's not saying it for dramatic effect. His departure really is at hand. He had every reason to believe that Timothy was going to have a long and effective ministry, but that his ministry was coming to a close. One translation has Paul saying to Timothy, quote, I solemnly urge you to preach the message. Insist on proclaiming it, whether it's the the time is right or not to convince, repro- reproach, encourage as you teach with all patience. With all long suffering or patience. And by the way, patience is the glue. Patience is the glue that connects the pastor to sermon. And then the pastor to the people, patience. Patience is what connects both sinner and saint. And so patience isn't something that you just simply have with the sermon. Patience is something that you have to have with the people. The pastor's teaching is based on God's word and sound doctrine, healthy, wholesome teaching. But you have to be patient. The Lord Jesus, in one of his post-resurrection appearances, told his disciples that the words which he spoke while he was with them had to be fulfilled, which were written in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. In Luke 24, 44, in Luke's Gospel, it says, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise, and he said to them, this is written and thus it is necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and remission or the forgiveness of sin should be preached in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem and you've been witnesses of these things. The Jesus is explaining Jesus is explaining the meaning of his resurrection Let me help you understand how important this is. Jesus is helping his disciples understand the meaning of his resurrection using the scriptures. You should be shocked. The shock should be, well, he's risen from the dead. There he is. He's alive right in front of them. He was dead and now he's alive and he's alive right in front of them. And you might be thinking, he's alive right in front of them. Why would he have to use the scriptures? Because Jesus knew that every preacher in every generation would have to use this book to convince, to persuade. Some of you might be thinking, well, I would believe. If Jesus all of a sudden just literally showed up, then guess what? I would believe you. No, you wouldn't. You would think, I saw Star Wars. I saw Star Trek. This might be some sort of beam image. An ancient alien might be presenting some sort of hologram in order to fool me. The Bible says that without faith it's impossible to please God. No wonder D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said preaching is theology coming through a man who is on fire. Jesus said the Messiah has to rise from the dead the third day. The Messiah has to suffer, Psalm 22. He, he uses the law of Moses, prophets, psalms, the main divisions of the Old Testament, the, God's revelation to the children of Israel. The Messiah has to rise. Repentance and remission of sin has to be preached in his name. The whole chapter, all of Luke chapter 24, is full of opened things an open tomb in verse 12, an open home in verse 29 opened eyes in verse 31, opened scriptures in verse 32, opened understanding in verse 45, the heavens open in verse 51. How interesting, especially when people have lived their lives with their eyes closed and their hearts closed. Jesus felt it was necessary that they understand the scriptures. Jesus interpreted the scriptures in light of his suffering and resurrection from the the dead. And with that in mind, Jesus brings up repentance and remission of sin. This is what he preaches. Jesus preaches repentance, turning from sin and forgiveness of sin. How could I do any less? This is what must be preached and it has to be preached in his name. The truth is that no human being, no human being will ever enter heaven until he or she is first convinced that they deserve to be in hell. I thought that way. I think it's true. But you can't stay there. That's not the final word. I deserve to be in hell, but Jesus is giving me an opportunity to be in heaven. There's something even more. That something more is, you mean Jesus loves somebody like me? He's willing to forgive somebody like me? He's willing to cleanse somebody like me? In the past, evangelists like D.L. Moody preached, quote, man is born with his face turned away from god but when he truly repents he turns towards god and he leaves his old life so paul anticipates a time when that kind of preaching will be the exception the precious rare unwelcome preaching is not going to last long. Look, he says, preach the word. This is the right time, for this is the the time will come when they won't endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desire, because they have itching ears, they're going to heap for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth. They will be turned aside to fables. In this chapter, Paul gives two compelling reasons to accept and embrace the charge. He anticipates a genuine rebellion. He anticipates a genuine revulsion. He anticipates a genuine disgust for the life-giving gospel preaching. And then the second reason he gives is because the time of his departure is at hand. Paul consistently exposes the false teacher, the false teacher's motive, the false teacher's doctrine, but Paul knows the false teacher's damage would be far less if he or she didn't have a willing audience. Paul anticipates a time when large numbers of people will crave community. They're hardwired for worship and fellowship. But look what it says. For the time will come when they, who's they? It's the people. They won't endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desire, they're going to need something else. You know, sometimes the fault does lie with the preacher. And sometimes the fault lies with the person listening. Sometimes the fault lies with the preacher because the preacher isn't clear or compelling. But sometimes the fault is with the listener. Paul sets the scene, for the time will come. Paul warns of a time when people won't listen to the gospel. And they won't listen to gospel preaching. And if it's a message about repentance and receiving Jesus and following Jesus and obeying Jesus, it's going to sound Absurd. It's gonna sound absurd. A new generation is going to demand teaching centered around, look what the text says, their own desires. That word desires reflects a kind of selfish lust. The lust, here's what I here's what I want. I want inoffensive preaching. And I want to confine my offense to the gospel. I don't want to go out of my way to purposely offend. The lust for gratifying or novel preaching, inoffensive preaching, is easily found by so-called preachers who are cowards, they're cowards. They're cowards. They're cowards because they're more concerned about offending you than they are about offending God. And they're cowards because they refuse to bring up the subject of sin. They refuse to bring up the need to repent of sin. Cowards who refuse to defend life. They refuse to defend religious freedom. Cowards who refuse to say plainly that the Bible is true and Jesus is Lord. Cowards who are afraid that you'll take your tithe and your offering and you'll go away until you finally find someone who will say what you're willing to hear. And so, in a very real sense, Paul is pointing out that the people, it's the people, it's the people who are going to demand teachers who will. Simply allow them to live according to their own desire, that they can satisfy their own craving, that they can do their own thing. Sexual cravings, cravings for recognition and honor, cravings for status and money and possession and image and approval. But sometimes it's even cravings for what you might think are good things, discipline, control, religion, good works, charity, benevolence. But they don't have any appetite at all when you when you say sin is a problem. It's a huge problem. You've got to turn from your sin and you've got to turn to the savior. Human beings loathe honesty about their sin and the solution to the problem of sin. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with personal development. It's not wrong to want to live a better life. It's not wrong to to be disciplined in your diet. It's not wrong to be charitable. It's not wrong to exercise benevolence. But none of those can ever, ever serve as a serious substitute for the problem of just simply saying, Lord, please forgive my sin because of what Jesus has done on the cross. The new message that the people insist upon has to steer clear from the truth. But guess what? Nature abhors a vacuum, and a fallen nature is no exception. In that dark, empty hole of unfulfilled life, apostate people will rush to hear fables, fictions, That expression, because they have itching ears, is most expressive. The specific word is found only here in the New Testament and only here in this passage. It's a figure of speech that means to scratch that itch, to tickle that fancy. It can mean to look for something that's spicy and juicy. Give me something spicy. Give me something juicy. The preacher talked over my head. The preacher keeps talking about sin. The preacher makes me feel bad. The preacher is judgmental. The preacher is boring. And the message is frightening. Terrifying. The preacher relentlessly declares that sin is a problem and left unchecked and ignored. It's going to result in punishment. I think I told you the story about my dentist. I got so frustrated because I have nothing but problems with my mouth. And, and the doctor said, floss, you have to floss. You have to floss. <laughs> Which tooth? The one you want to keep. <laughs> See, you're laughing because it, it's funny. People shouldn't be that stupid as me. And so the False teachers, strange myths and fables make sense. And so they go somewhere else where they can listen to the fable of evolution where they can listen to the fable that you are the product of unguided, undirected consequences, that the universe and all living things in it are unplanned, unguided, undirected, the fable that human beings are descended from lower life forms, the fable that you really don't matter, that you're just another animal, that God's revelation is not true, the Bible is not true. William MacDonald said, quote, the lust for inoffensive preaching will cause people to turn their ears from truth to myths. He says it's a poor exchange to sacrifice truth for fables and the historical Jesus and the stubborn truth that he died on the cross for your sins and he rose from the dead will continue to plague the casual person who wonders, it can't possibly be true. The unbeliever says, it can't be true. It can't be true. The make-believer says, it might be true. The sincere seeker says, what if it's true? The convinced believer says, oh my Lord, it is true. It is true. Everything that the Bible says about Jesus is true. And therefore everything that Jesus says about me is true. And that means I'm going to have to be different. I'm going to have to be different. There's got to be something different about my life. Warren Wiersbe told a generation of pastors, quote, a sermon isn't a picture on the wall hanging there for folks to admire. It isn't even a window in the wall giving people a glimpse of a beautiful life that's beyond their reach. The sermon is a door that opens onto a path that leads the pilgrim into new steps of growth and service to the Lord, unquote. It's not preaching unless the sinner hears the gospel. It's not preaching unless the sinner's given an opportunity to experience hope. It's not preaching Unless you're told that there's a way out and that there's hope, it's not preaching. Unless the pilgrim sees Jesus up ahead, it's not biblical preaching if we fail to see Jesus crucified and risen from the dead and able to save the sinner and then to walk with the saint to the future that he has set aside for you. Have you come to Christ? Have you really received him as your savior? Has your life changed? Has your heart changed? Has your attitude changed? Has your temptations, are they being met now with a resolve? I'm not saying you have to be perfect and you never have a problem, but are you different? Do you think differently? Do you speak differently? Do you want to be different because of Jesus? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for the person who remains unconvinced. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would do only what you could do. Lord, you will break their heart that they would recognize that they need you now more than ever. And Lord, I pray for the saint. I pray for that young man and that young woman. I pray for the older man and the older woman who struggled and said, why am I still here? And what is it that you need me to do? Lord, I pray that you would reveal it to them and that they would be faithful. They would be found faithful when Jesus shows up in glory doing exactly, exactly what you've asked them to do. And just like Carolyn and the worship team sang earlier, we sang, You're not finished with me yet. You're not finished with me yet. You're not finished with me yet. Because I can inhale, and I can exhale. I can open my eyes and I can smile, and I can still speak. For some people listening right now, they can't. Their eyes are shut, their mouth is closed. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes, open their mouth, open their heart to the world that you have for them. Lord, we turn from our sin. We turn to the Savior. Wash us and cleanse us. Use us according to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.